Hi, this is Pam Johnson. Back to finish up my talk on thoracic endovascular stent repair. And we're moving on to post-repair complications. These go beyond CT imaging and include acute renal failure, prolonged intubation, pneumonia, stroke, paraplegia, ischemic colitis, and then rarely hemorrhage or myocardial infarction. So these are these are not unique to endovascular repair. These are similar complications that can be seen with any type of aortic repair. The risk of stroke, it's important to note that in the, the literature that has been published, endovascular stent repair may not reduce the risk of neurologic complications compared to open repair. Things that increase the risk of stroke include traversing the aortic arch with the wire or positioning the graft in the proximity of the arch vessels. So as I mentioned previously, the risk of spinal cord ischemia increases in patients who require left subclavian artery coverage because of flow to the anterior spinal artery by the left vertebral artery and because of the intercostal artery perfusion. If they've had prior abdominal aortic stent placement or abdominal aortic surgery, they are at increased risk and patients who have require more than 50% of the thoracic aorta covered or the T9 to T12 levels covered. So what the surgeon will do in these patients is place a pre-procedural spinal drain. This reduces the risk of, of paraplegia, especially in those patients with a higher risk for spinal cord ischemia. Um, what this does is decreases the CSF pressure. Even in a patient who did not have a preoperative drain placed, but who develops symptoms of spinal cord ischemia postoperatively, palliation can be performed by placement of a drain. What, what this, um, the measures that are taken include increasing the mean systemic arterial pressure to increase perfusion of the spinal artery, and then placement of a CSF drain to decrease the pressure in the CSF. And this increases cord perfusion by decreasing the spinal compartment syndrome and has been shown to facilitate recovery. So imaging with CT to identify complications. The CT should include pre-contrast arterial and venous acquisitions for specific reasons. The pre-contrast acquisition enables distinction of aortic calcification from endoleak. So here's a patient with an abdominal um, an abdominal stent placed and on the arterial phase there's some high density within the aneurysm sac but on the pre-contrast scan this is confirmed just to be calcification. It might have been a problematic interpretation if you didn't have a pre-contrast scan. Here is a patient with an uh, extensive very long thoracoabdominal aneurysm that underwent endovascular stent repair and as I mentioned uh, high degrees of angulation and tortuosity are associated with the development of endoleaks. So following stent placement, this patient developed a type 2 endoleak that can be seen on both arterial and venous phase imaging, so both the early and the delayed acquisition. Um, in, this pa in this patient, the, the use of two acquisitions does not necessarily... Um, is not necessarily absolutely required to find a, a large endoleak, but in the smaller endoleaks, they can be um, subtle on one on the early run or the late run and really seen best on the alternative run. So it's difficult to predict all cases, and we routinely perform both arterial and venous phase imaging. So what other um, 
things are we looking for when we're evaluating these patients with CT? We want to confirm the stent positioning. We want to confirm that the pathology has been excluded, and we want to identify complications such as endoleak, arterial branch occlusion, stent collapse, and migration. There was a paper published in Radiology talking about looking for a bird beak configuration, which indicates that the proximal stent is not in complete contact with the aortic wall. And what this finding is on a multiplanar reconstruction, it's a wedge-shaped gap between the undersurface of the stent and the wall. And here's an image from that paper showing exactly what's being measured in looking for this bird beak configuration. The presence of the bird beak is associated with a higher risk of endoleaks and the long the longer the bird beak, the higher the risk. Other adverse events that were associated with the presence of a bird beak included death, need for endovascular repair, graft collapse, and infolding. So it's, it is important to try to determine whether the stent is in complete opposition with the aortic wall. Let's discuss endoleaks. These can occur in between 3 and 29%. The risk factors include aortic morphology, the length of the proximal landing zone, the patient's age, and the type of the stent graft used. Um, just to define, the type 1 endoleak involves either the proximal or distal end of the stent. These are often best seen on the arterial phase. The type 2 is either perfused by the left subclavian artery, called a 2S, or perfused by an intercostal or bron bronchial branch, 2O, and these can be seen on arterial and venous phase. Type 3 is a defect in the graft material, or which we've seen commonly at the junction of overlapping stents. So here's a patient with a type 1 endoleak. The pre-T-bar imaging shows a type B dissection that was repaired at an outside institution. And we can see that there's still perfusion of the false lumen proximally due to a type 1 endoleak, large type 1 endoleak shown on these axial images. Um, on follow-up, the endoleak persist and definitive surgical repair was required, as shown on the image on the right, on the color-coded volume rendering where the patient underwent um, surgical graft placement. In another patient, a 77-year-old man with an extensive thoracic aortic aneurysm, he had, he had had a prior ascending and hemiarch replacement 11 years previously and he had had thoracoabdominal aortic replacement six years previously, but he had developed a recurrent aneurysm over time. So the patient underwent endovascular stent repair, necessitating coverage of the left subclavian artery uh, without any sequela in this patient. Here's a 77-year-old man with extensive thoracic aortic aneurysm who had had previously had an ascending aortic aorta and hemiarch replacement 11 years prior and six years prior he had had thoracoabdominal aortic replacement. Um, he presents with a recurrent long, long segment aneurysm that was repaired with endovascular stent placement. In this patient actually the left subclavian artery was covered without sequela but the patient developed um, a large refractory type 1 endoleak, which persisted after additional stenting and endovascular coiling. And here's some follow-up images showing this persistent endoleak. This required, um, it was initially coiled and it recurred. Here's the image where it's being coiled. So he eventually underwent arch replacement and reimplantation of the neck arteries, which 
uh, I'm not showing the images for, but that's that was his outcome that it persisted despite endovascular coiling, and that can happen. So let's talk for a minute about um, what I mentioned in my prior lecture about how aortoiliac morphology increases the risk of endoleaks. So the arch curvature increases type 1A, thoracoabdominal junction associated with type 1B, and mid-portion associated with type 3. Here is a patient, status post endovascular stent repair of a thoracic aneurysm seven years previously, axial and sagittal NPRs um, show the mid-thoracic angulation. And this patient has a type 3 endoleak, as we can see, a large type 3 endoleak where the, where the um, stents are overlapping. Additional stenting was performed, um, and that endoleak resolved, as you can see on the image on the left, but the patient developed a type 1 endoleak at the distal end of the new graft, which has been progressively resolving on serial CT images. So when multiple stents are used, there is the risk of a type 3 endoleak. And there was one paper which nicely defined the, um, the forces at work that, that result in this lateral instability of the most proximal or distal graph directly affects the longitudinal stability of the connecting stent graphs. So in this uh, paper, it was recommended to overlap the stent graphs by 5 centimeters to reduce the risk of developing an endoleak. Okay, moving on to the next patient. This is a patient who had an aortic rupture repair with an, uh, an endograft. We can see on the non-contrast image, there's the hematoma from the prior rupture with the stent graft, um, which is patent, but with a large um, endoleak surrounding the graft on the second axial image. This patient had both type 1 and type 3 endoleaks as shown on the multiplanar reconstructions. He underwent additional stenting, and on the follow-up image on the right, the endoleaks resolved, shown again with coronal uh, NPR before and after additional stenting. So other complications identified on CT, migration, it occurs in 3%, very small percentage. Very rare is endograft infection, and this often requires surgical intervention and has a high risk of mortality. The stent can collapse. A patient can develop a retrograde type A dissection of the ascending aorta proximal to the stent. And patients can develop aneurysms distal to the descending to a dis, distal to a repaired descending aortic dissection. So you have to look closely at the caliber of the of the abdominal aorta distal to the pathology. This may change over time and progress. So here's a case of stent migration. This patient presented with a small saccular aneurysm and a penetrating ulcer of the arch shown on axial and coronal images. Patient underwent endoluminal stent repair. And the post-stent fluoroscopic and CT images showed that um, there was left subclavian coverage, but the patient had undergone left subclavian to carotid bypass preoperatively, which I'm not showing. And so... Um, the left subclavian is covered, but the left carotid was not covered initially. And here's the post-treatment image. We can see that the penetrating ulcer has been occluded. Um, patient 
that night following stent placement developed acute change in mental status and weakness on the right side of her body. Repeat imaging with demonstrated that the stent graft had migrated and was now covering the left common carotid artery. As shown by these fluoroscopic images, this necessitated placement of a carotid stent and she uh, recovered completely with no residual defect. But this can occur rarely. The stent can migrate and cover a branch vessel and it's something that we need to be looking for on imaging. Here's the post procedure image after placing a stent in the carotid artery which is now nicely perfused. This is a rare complication with a really high mortality rate, the infection of a stent graft. This is that same patient that had a large, that had ruptured and had a large periaortic hematoma. On these follow-up images, the patient developed a graft infection. We can see a fluid collection with gas bubbles surrounding the stent. Um, he was not a surgical candidate and was treated with drains and IV antibiotics, but this often necessitates surgical intervention. One of the rare complications is endograft collapse and it's been shown to occur more commonly in patients with dissections and trauma as opposed to the patients who with aneurysms who are treated. There was one Moldy Center review from 05 to 09 that identified only 11 patients so it's not a common complication. These patients had either traumatic aortic transection or an acute type B dissection. The collapse occurred on average nine days after stent placement but it could occur as as soon as one day and as late as 38 months after the stent was placed. In most patients, endovascular management sufficed. In patients who have uh, arch or descending thoracic aortic repair, they, ca they can develop, this is a rare complication, but a very serious complication, a retrograde type A dissection. The risk factors include, this was a study that, that looked at patients who had developed this complication and tried to define risk factors. This included the, the graft. It was associated with the grafts that had proximal bare springs. This was associated with steeply angulated aortic arch um, in the setting of a morphologically normal aorta. So that angulation puts them at risk for developing this retrograde type A dissection. And... Um, or, the, or sort of a combination of both, which was a compliance mismatch between the stent graft and the aortic wall. So these are the factors that were defined. Now here's a patient that was had a descending thoracic aortic dissection explain, um, repaired by endovascular stent placement that went up into the arch. He had a successful stent placement on his initial post-treatment images with no residual dissection. But the patient um, was lost to follow-up didn't come back for follow-up and was not compliant with his medications. And when he did return, he six months later, he had a large retrograde type A dissection with a large pseudoaneurysm, as you can see, adjacent to the proximal aortic arch, very large pseudoaneurysm, and he was required to undergo surgical repair. Next patient, this is an example of the downstream aortic dilatation that can occur. Um, this 23-year-old woman who has Marfan syndrome had a mitral and aortic valve replacement. As you can see on the image on the right, she's got two valves. She had a chronic type B dissection treated in another country with endovascular stent repair. Um, so here we see the stents and the valves. And here is her abdominal aorta on the baseline exam. And then a follow-up, seven months apart. So we see some pretty rapidly progressing dilatation of the abdominal aorta. This is a complication 
that necessitates repair of the abdominal aorta, and we have to look carefully and, and perform measurements beyond the area of the stent and be aware of this. Um, so serial imaging is essential. Rarely patients are going to require surgical reintervention. These are those with a refractory endoleak. The case I showed of the retrograde type A dissection is clearly a, uh, requiring emergent surgery. Patient who has progression of aortic disease, stent collapse, or infection. These patients may all require surgical reintervention. Other indications include arm ischemia, after left subclavian artery, coverage, distal reperfusion. If there's retrograde flow via patent reentry tears, distal to the stent, aortoesophageal fistula, mycotic aneurysm f formation, or true lumen collapse. So these were, these were um, things that I identified over a number of different studies where uh, surgical reintervention was required. Rarely the stent may need to be explanted, and this occurs, there was one paper that defi defined um, the indications for this, which included device failure, infection, retrograde type A dissection, and type 1 endoleak. So there were a few patients that they identified that had needed their stent explanted, and these were the reasons why. So in conclusion, um, I hope that you now have a good understanding of the indications for endovascular stent repair. Um, as, because the number of patients that are deemed suitable continues to expand with growing experience and with development of more innovative stents. Our role is to identify these patients. Our role is to provide the interventionalist or the surgeon with all of the information preoperatively beyond just identifying the pathology. We want to provide them with, with a surgical map and try and identify indicators of higher risk of, of complication and we are going to follow these images, these patients with CT, so we need to know what the complications look like and what, what the expected findings are in, an, in a successful stent placement um, over serial imaging. So, essential is use of both axial and multiplanar reconstructions, um, not just for identifying the complications or for identifying the preoperative indicators of a higher risk of complication, but also for communicating the information. Um, to the vascular interventionalist. So that's it. Thank you very much and have a great day.